Hello this is Arun the co-producer and narrator of the podcast you're just about to listen to Thanks so much for choosing to listen to our podcast This podcast is made with immersive audio so get your headphones out and connect it to your device or if you're listening to it on a great home stereo with a bluetooth connection or home theater system or in the comfort of your car for that amazing immersive audio experience we hope you like it This is a Scrap Studio production and we at Scraps are an organization whose primary focus is to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovation as a service to the world. We take pride in bringing you the stories of people in science and history of science. If you like this series, please do search for our other podcasts from Scrap Studio. The podcast is titled Scraps with a K. It's S K R A P S, which is an interview-based podcast series focusing on many topics with expert scientists and innovators on a variety of topics like biomedical engineering, cardiac biology, medtech, climate change, psychopathy, human composting, material science, artificial intelligence, venture capital, and many more. We don't just talk about the subjects. we talk about the stories of the very scientists who work on these areas if you like our work please share it with your friends family and acquaintances and please talk about it over coffee drinks and on vacation this is the best help that you can provide us so far we have taken a deep look at psychedelics from a societal history perspective that part of the psychedelic story is interesting in itself There are the properties of the substances themselves that we explored in episode 5. But beyond the science that we will dig into a bit more, the fascinating thing about psychedelics is how they were misunderstood over and over by religious ideologies and cultural differences. More importantly, the very molecules that are supposed to be opening up the mind drove differences, for which the advocates passionately voiced their opinion, triggering panic and paranoia among the excitement. so the damage was done psychedelics were lumped in with other psychoactive substances and organizations like the DEA and governments around the world pushed hard for keeping up the prohibition but how did the world change from its prohibitionist stance to allowing the proper exploration of the use of these substances in some of the recent clinical trials that's the story we're going to explore next and the path to where we are today did not happen without a lot of hiccups blood, sweat, and tears. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. The best place to start is exactly where we left off, the year 1971. We've spoken enough about the geopolitical situation at this time, but what we haven't spoken is how the world of psychedelic research came to a standstill. One could argue that in a world of chaos, such a reset is needed. A reset that was so hard that people needed to completely reassess the impact of what had happened. Let me give you an example to help you understand. Take the case of a heart that is fibrillating like a bag of worms, unable to get a single proper contraction. What does an emergency medical technician do? They assess the situation and the patient. They check for pulse, and if no pulse was detected, they shock the heart. What happens in the heart once it's been shocked is the period of delay between when the shock is provided to when the normal activity resumes this pause is a reset of all electrical circuitry that was needed 
so the field of psychedelic research needed this reset. There could have been rationality that could have prevailed on all sides, but you know what? When science influences the mind to influence society and politics, you cannot have it solely one way. The government could have of course taken a more considerate approach. On the other side, the psychedelic evangelists, psychologists and the psychiatrists could have run control experiments to show that what they believed was good enough. After all, randomized control studies were being done around this time and this was not a foreign concept. Why did the chemists, psychologists and psychiatrists skip these steps and run only observational studies and not bona fide clinical trials? This is something that can spur a healthy debate. Why was there a paucity of randomized controlled clinical studies to show to their peers, the regulators and everyone involved to demonstrate that the effects were not subjective or made up but one that had a strong scientific grounding is not known. Well, if you disagree, let me tell you the first randomized controlled clinical trial was done in 1948 which explored the role of streptomycin for the treatment of pulmonary tuberculosis. You don't believe me? Here is what the book published in 1979 called as Psychedelic Drugs Revisited authored by Lester Grinspoon and James Bacalar said, and I quote, Many people remember vaguely that LSD and other psychedelic drugs were once used experimentally in psychiatry, but few realize how much and how long they were used. This is not a quickly rejected and a forgotten fad. Between the years 1950 and the mid-1960s, there were more than a thousand clinical papers discussing 40,000 patients, several dozen books, and six international conferences on psychedelic drug therapy. It aroused the interest of many psychiatrists who were in known sense cultural rebels or especially radical in their attitudes. It aroused the interest of many psychiatrists who were in no sense cultural rebels or especially radical in their attitudes. Sure, but to our knowledge and through careful research that we've undertaken, none of the few thousand clinical papers discussing 40,000 patients were controlled trials that were needed to approve a drug for clinical use. So in the absence of that, one could argue that the field brought all of this on itself. Why do we say this? Not because we don't believe in the potential, but because if the field of psychiatric medicine needs to make a claim, 40,000 patient administrations might provide a great feeling about safety in a clinical setting, but to clearly identify signal over noise, a proper clinical trial is needed. This is so crucial to understand, because no drug should ever be used without a proper study, and if things were done without good scientific rigor, it deserves to wallow in the wild. This is the point where we have a critical pivot in the podcast, one from where the drugs went from the vial to the mouth, to one where the field realized that a more considered approach was needed. This is because the people who wanted to change the world's view decided that to fight against the taboo, they needed to have a rock-solid proof, without passion or prejudice, to build evidence. And that evidence should be constructed like a fortress, whose bricks needed to be laid one after the other, fixed in place by mortar, all of which is to be done transparently and within legal means. So can we dig in? The first personality that we're going to pick up is Amanda Fielding. Amanda was born in the same year that Albert Hoffman took his first dose of LSD and had the famed bicycle trip. But Amanda's life would read like a novel, except that none of her life was fiction. She was born into a well-to-do British family that possessed a Tudor hunting lodge and a peerage. Amanda's father was an earl, so it is fair to say that compared to the rest of society, she had a privileged upbringing. Growing up in a Tudor lodge and being raised by parents who held mysticism and books about Eastern religions, young Amanda was thought to have been lost in mystical thoughts, so much so in search of a life-changing experience, she left the UK to see her uncle who was stationed in Salon, as Sri Lanka was called back then. But with a mere 25 pounds in her purse and no passport, her journey only got halfway to the Syrian border. 
There she is said to have met a group of drunk Bedouins who owned a Cadillac and were in utter shambles. And 16-year-old Amanda's driving is said to have helped the group to drive out of the desert to their encampments. There, Amanda found some interesting learnings about the nomadic lifestyle and the free-spiritedness that came with it. A year later, she arrived back in the UK to pursue comparative religious studies and mysticism in a degree program at Oxford. Much like the stories we heard about social and recreational use of LSD, Amanda had her first LSD experience at a party in the 1960s. This experience was so bad that ultimately she had to cocoon herself in her parental home near Oxford in the United Kingdom. A few months later, she met a medical student from Holland who had some radical notions. This young medical student, Bart Hughes, had an influence on Amanda's life. Bart and Amanda experienced many LXD trips. Bart Hughes was a massive influence on Amanda's life. Bart Hughes's reasoning was that a process called trepanation, which involved drilling of holes in the skull, would lead to normalization of the cranial blood and cerebrospinal fluid ratio and improve cerebral circulation. Before you wince, we must say that trepanation is a process that was undertaken in many ancient cultures, dating all the way back to prehistoric Neolithic period around 6500 BC. There's also evidence to suggest that trepanation was performed in other cultures too, like with the ancient Chinese, Middle Eastern, and Mesoamerican cultures. In fact, today's neurosurgical practice to treat hematoma in the brain involve a variation of trepanation. And Amanda's hypothesis was that just like how the childhood mystical experiences decrease with the closure of the fontanelles, when the cranial bones fuse, trepanation was said to unlock a form of mysticism by altering the blood circulation in the brain. Why are we bringing this aspect to the podcast? It's because these very thoughts were the foundation of Amanda Fielding's fascination with psychedelics. These were so radical at the time that the popular tabloids and establishment did not take very kindly to either LSD or trepanation. Amanda and Bart are said to have escaped to the Netherlands via boat, and after a few months, the pair split, and Amanda moved to the UK to live in her Tudor estate. But the following years, according to her own admittance, was a bit revelatory. Amanda, driven by her father's struggle with diabetes, had an inspired moment whereby she decided that the best way for her to understand and manage her cognitive function was by exploring the use of psychedelics. So through the period in the 1960s when LSD was still legal, Amanda was said to have self-experimented with LSD and assess her performance in a competitive game of mahjong against her friends and house help. She made the conclusion that LSD somehow altered the circulation in the brain that was similar to trepanation. While there are more colorful accounts of Amanda Fielding in popular press, her realization after the 1971 ban is something that needs to be admired. Through her art, she made quite a few acquaintances and managed to maintain a reasonably low profile with trepanation attempts surfacing from time to time. All of it came to a head when she realized that she needed to fight the battle against the prohibition of psychedelics in a way that would look scientifically credible. Spurred on by what she perceived as a bad policy that prevented humans from approaching their right to have a mystical experience, and with an indomitable spirit that had the confidence in the ability of psychedelics, Amanda set out to chart a plan in 1998. We will come to this in just a bit. Until then, hold on. We need to tell you another parallel story at this point. The scene now moves to 1970s America to explore the impact a 20-year-old man born in Chicago had on the field of psychedelic research. Rick Doblin was born into a conservative Jewish family to a pediatrician and a school teacher. Doblin, the eldest of four children, decided to drop out of college to study the realms of consciousness after an LSD trip. His parents, like most, were shocked. They let Rick follow his dreams nonetheless. Rick enrolled himself in Liberal Arts College in Florida. Unlike other universities that follow grades, evaluations at New Florida State College were contracts between the student and the counselor. Young Rick was said to have been introduced to noted psychologist Stanislav Grof's book, 
Realms of Human Unconscious, Results from LSD Experiments, and was said to have been fascinated by it. But here, buoyed on by careful experimentation accounts, Rick understood the value of preparation and integration in psychedelic practices. As is the case with people who search for a goal, young Rick attended to some immediate priorities by working in construction for a few years before his interest in psychology peaked again. He approached Stanislav Grof and worked with him to understand non-ordinary states of consciousness as one would experience through practices like yoga, meditation, and psychedelic experiences. Rick Doblin, through his work with Stan Grof, became a holotropic breathwork practitioner. All of this fascination in psychology was realized in a key fundamental principle, that the key to an effective psychedelic experience was the presence of adequate psychotherapy and support. Rick's realization came from two specific historical studies that he went back to. We alluded to one of them in episode four, where Doblin was the first one to interview the prison inmates from Leary's Concord Prison Experiment to find that the prisoners receive little to no aftercare or integration sessions, and Timothy Leary fudged the data. Rick Doblin published these results in 1998. Another study that pointed Rick's outlook to how a psychedelic therapeutic session must be conducted came from the Good Friday experiment. Rick Doblin published these results in 1991, a few years before the results of the Concord Prison Experiment. If you're wondering what this is, It was an experiment that was conducted by a Harvard theology student, Walter Pank, under the supervision of, you guessed it, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert as part of the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Walter Pankey, along with 10 other graduate students who served as research assistants in the study, recruited 20 other graduate students to take part in the research study. This 20 graduate students were divided into two groups and randomized into one active drug group, which was psilocybin, and a placebo, nicotinic acid. Nicotinic acid was chosen as the placebo because it provides an effective vasodilatory response over the skin, resulting in a warm feeling. The students were then asked to take part in the Good Friday service, and upon Leary's insistence, The religious leaders who led the ceremony were also provided with either a drug or a placebo with with the group leader receiving half the dose of psilocybin and the other group leader having a placebo. This was according to Rick Doblin's paper and I quote, to provide a complete mystical experience and lend necessary confidence to the subjects. However, the group leaders were not followed up with any questionnaires but all the study participants were. If you think this is a serious pitfall, I think you're not alone. The problem with this experiment was that psilocybin's effect was obvious to those who received it as the subjects were talking to each other during the service and the blinding was broken during the ceremony. But Rick Doblin, in his follow-up interviews, surmised that none of the subjects were prepared in any shape or form for the experience And this led to acute episodes of panic during the service among the study subjects. Secondly, the questionnaire created by Pankey and Leary was unlike anything else at this time. It did not measure anything that could be denoted as Christian and was dismissed by experts later on who developed more pointed questionnaires. As a result, the two experiments that Leary spearheaded, despite the whole set and setting, were not conducted well. So Rick Doblin asserted to himself that an effective psychotherapy with psychedelics should include preparation, support during an experience, followed by integration and follow through. Despite all this, one thing was clear. The psilocybin treated volunteers did unanimously agree to Rick Doblin that their experience was unlike any other that they had experienced in their life. Coming back to the effects of salience that we explored in the pharmacology episode. I think we should also mention to you the conversation Rick Doblin had with Timothy Leary in the 1990s that was chronicled in Boston Magazine a couple of years ago. In 1990, I asked Leary, 
Based on your long experience with psychedelic research, what is your advice to us about how to try to bring back psychedelic research and to make it into medicine? How do you suggest we work with the government? He said, I am so far past asking the government for permission for anything, but I'm glad you're doing it. So he's like, fuck the government. And we're like, let's become mainstream. But Rick Doblin's journey beyond these realizations are unlike any other. We will come to that in a few minutes. But to understand this convoluted yet legal path that Rick Doblin took, we must go one level deeper. We must rewind our clocks back to the 1960s to chronicle the life of a very industrious chemist who made a very profitable pesticide called Zectran for the Dow Chemical Company and was referred to by Timothy Leary, and I quote, as the most important scientist of the 20th century. Dow Chemical Company, in return for the discovery of their most profitable pesticide patent, gave the chemist utmost freedom. Until the 1940s, when this young scientist went on to start his career for the Dow Chemical Company, there were only two psychoactive substances that was known. One was mescaline, and the other was cannabis. LSD came in 1943, psilocybin in 1959. But by the time the 80s ended, the world had come to know of more than 200 synthetic compounds through the work of this chemist, who synthesized molecules that were... Are you ready for the list? Stimulants, depressants, aphrodisiac, empathogens, convulsants, drugs that alter hearing, drugs that slow down one sense of time, Drugs that speed it up, drugs that trigger violent outbursts, drugs that deaden emotion, and in short, a veritable lexicon of tactile and emotional experience. The scientist that we are talking about is Alexander Shulgin. In the plain sight of the DEA, Shulgin synthesized most of these substances in his backyard laboratory. You can call Shulgin the unwitting genius or the Heisenberg of psychoactive substances. Shulgin's first psychedelic experience was with mescaline, and it was said to have influenced a lot of his work, including the famed patent for Zectran, the blockbuster pesticide. With newfound freedom that Dow Chemical Company provided, Shulgin decided that it was time to indulge in making psychoactive substances of his own, and even published influential journals like Nature and Journal of Biochemistry. Dow Chemical Company is said to have not taken to their name being used widely and asked Shulgin to not use their name as an affiliation. It is weird to think of. Shulgin was using Dow's resources to publish research, but Dow Chemical Company requested him not to use their name. Requested? Don't think this would ever fly today. So what did Shulgin do? He parted ways with the company and set up his own lab in his backyard called The Farm, where in plain daylight he could carry on with synthesis of new psychoactive substances while still serving as a consultant to the DEA. During this time, he synthesized many of these substances and provided them to the DEA. Was it a conflict of interest? If you think there isn't one, let me tell you a bit more to see if I can persuade you to change your mind. Through these processes, he managed to publish two books that were cult classics of the scientifically inclined, Tikal and Pikal, standing for tryptamines, I have known and love, and phenylethamines, I know and love. So in the face of the prohibition, as the DEA-funded analytics lab, Shulgin manages to avoid scrutiny. Or was Shulgin such an amazing operator that he managed to have both DEA on his side and also publicize his books. Shulgin always maintained, right up until his death, that he did not intend for any of his substance to be used for recreational use. But talking the talk is different than walking the walk. Just like Hoffman, Shulgin does something weird and wonderful. I sometimes wonder why people would ever do anything like this. Shulgin knew that he was researching amphetamines, and amphetamines by nature would mimic the effects of adrenaline. Somehow, he assesses what would be a safe and tolerable concentration and manages to take a lower dose of the drug himself. Once again, serendipitously, the world gave rebirth to a molecule that was synthesized in 1912, but was now being tested on Shulgin himself. 
Shulgin noted a remarkable sense of euphoria and recommended it to his psychologist friend, Leo Zeff. MDMA, through Shulgin's network in California, had spread to use in many psychologists who found the empathy-heightening nature as a tool that could be used in couples therapy. Once again, a drug went from the vial to the mouth to popular usage, right under the DEA's nose. But neither did the establishment nor the scientists think it was time to test in a formal way. There is a counter-argument for this too. Many will say that when Shulgin recommended the drug to his psychologist friend, Leo Zeff, it was still legal. Zeff, a former colonel in the US Army, prior to being a psychologist, did not do anything illegal. But honestly, if one needs or wants to develop a clinical use for a synthetic molecule, one should not implement it without performing appropriate safety or dose-ranging studies. It was not illegal then, but runs a fine line of whether or not it was ethical, as there wasn't even an investigational study protocol or a peer review. But Zeph was not alone at the time. Many psychologists were using MDMA in clinical practice. Why are we talking about this? Because once Alexander Shulgin's methodology of synthesis of MDMA became known to other underground chemists, the market for MDMA grew exponentially. The question remains, should the farm laboratory run by Shulgin have freely disseminated the information on synthesis of MDMA that laid the groundwork for recreational use in the 1980s? Popularized by the happy 80s disco and concert cultures, MDMA found a new use at bars and music festivals. What was inadequately addressed was the non-psychoactive side effects that are associated with MDMA that led to many deaths predominantly via dehydration and hypothermia, both of which are classic symptoms of hyperadrenergic response driven by amphetamines. So was Shulgin an amazing scientist or a person who miscalculated the effect he could have on popular culture? Well, as we always say, we are the gardener sowing the seeds in your head and you as the intelligent listener can make a decision. So the slow to react DEA bans the substance in 1985 and placed it in Schedule 1 of the DEA drug classification. And guess who was at the center of its legal appeal? Yes, Rick Doblin, of course. The 1985 ban and scheduling of MDMA into Schedule 1 meant that the substance had addictive psychoactive properties and did not have any therapeutic value, according to the DEA. But MDMA, as per the psychologists of the time, did have a therapeutic value. There were multiple clinical experiences and discussions and conferences that rendered it to be useful in clinical practice. So was the DEA wrong and did it overreact? What were the logical next steps? Many proponents of MDMA psychotherapy filed for a legal appeal and Rick Doblin spearheaded the effort. But Rick, who was 32 years old at the time, decided that things needed to be done formally to change the view of the world. This, I think, was the seminal moment in Rick's career. Rather than falling into the trap of all of those who came before him who evangelized the use of psychedelics, Rick Doblin decided that the best way to counter this was to fight the battle. But as you can imagine, the battle was largely disproportionate in nature and Rick Doblin had to resort to philanthropic donations to restart this lonely path to legalization of MDMA as a therapeutic tool. Between 1985 and 2011, Rick Doblin and his team at MAPS, a charity organization that he founded single-handedly, took up the case for performing studies as it needed to be done for the new drug. The toxicity studies were published in 1987 through formal engagement and extremely tough negotiations. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies launched its formal Phase I clinical trials in 2002. But the path to pivotal trials to test the efficacy took another 15 years. We'll come to the results and the efforts in a later episode, but the efforts of Rick Doblin in unpicking the past studies and figuring how to legalize psychedelic treatments should serve as an inspiration to all. 
But that was the case of MDMA, an atypical psychedelic molecule. It is atypical because it does not affect the 5-HT2A receptor that we discussed in the last episode. So what happened to the other molecules, like psilocybin or ayahuasca-derived tryptamine, known as DMT? How did they accomplish initiating trials with psilocybin or employ the synthetic substance that caused the psychedelic experience in ayahuasca, DMT, or dimethyltryptamine? Well, to understand this, let's go to an expert, Dr. Mark Geyer. Dr. Geyer is a psychopharmacologist at University of California, San Diego, and has been one of the few behavioral neuroscientists who employ both pharmacological and behavioral approaches to study drugs. Mark grew up in Oregon and went to school at the University of Oregon and then to University of Iowa and moved on to finish his PhD at University of California, San Diego in 1970. That was an interesting time in Mark's words because the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at UC San Diego was only 34 years old and in the years prior he had discovered an enzyme in the brains of rats that was to metabolize serotonin into a compound that was related to the active ingredient of ayahuasca called as dimethyltryptamine. But then life took a different turn when Mark Geyer started working on a newly identified neurotransmitter called dopamine. So you can see how seminal some of his work were. According to Mark, he began working explicitly on psychedelic compounds in 1974 and published the first psychedelic paper on dimethyltryptamine in rats in 1975. A year later, Mark Geyer, a fresh faculty member at UC San Diego, got a grant from the National Science Foundation to hire about a dozen undergraduate research students for a summer internship program to study the effect of LSD, primarily in a variety of behavioral tests. But what is more interesting is that Mark mentioned that one of his colleagues and him started offering a course called Dimensions of Consciousness, which... He was proud of saying that he still had the syllabus with him today. Mark was very proud that the syllabus for this course would be as relevant today as it was then, and in his words, not much has changed in the decades since. Mark gave us some great insights. He started his graduate student research career just when the 1971 war on drugs came into force, and he mentioned that he was working on some of the psychedelic substances all the way until 1975. So was the ban really not a ban? Or was the enforcement slow? Mark Geyer was categorical in stating to us that the ban was not an instantaneous event. As we mentioned, Mark had a grant from the NSF to study psychedelic compounds with undergraduate research students and lab assistants. So the DEA granted them license to obtain the psychedelic compounds through NIDA, or National Institute for Drug Abuse, which still is a federal agency today, that provides substances for research in a highly regulated manner. As they started their research work, a very alarming letter popped into their mailboxes a few months later. The letter was addressed to Mark's departmental chair, Arnold, to cease and desist all work on LSD and mescaline. Mark's departmental chair at the university was performing research of dosing mescaline to pigeons Despite a DEA license, they also needed a state license from the California Legal Approval Committee. The worrisome part was academics didn't even know that such a body existed, and that took some managing and redoing some paperwork. Mark maintains his DEA license is the exact same one that he dutifully maintained all the way through until his retirement. One cannot possibly miss the irony that Mark suggested to us, while he was grandfathered into the California Research Advisory Panel, a.k.a. CRAP. Researchers like Mark are beholden to organizations like the California Research Advisory Panel, or CRAP, as Mark jokingly refers to them. These licenses enabled Mark Geyer to work on the psychedelic compounds and write grants for research funding. And guess what was the focus of Mark's grants? It was to learn how a compound in milligrams or microgram quantities can cause change to one's mental state. But since he had to cater to the grant funding agencies at the time, the theme of his written words in the grant was to study the mechanisms of action of what the researchers of the time called psychedelics as hallucinogens or psychotomimetics. 
But the National Institute of Mental Health would not consider such work. They had dismissed the notion that we could learn anything about psychosis from these compounds, mostly because of the rapid and profound tolerance that one sees with these compounds in both humans and animals. The only option for grant funding was National Institute for Drug Abuse, and they, by definition, are not interested in studying psychiatric conditions other than substance abuse. Mark took an interesting tactic in his grant funding applications. He had to couch his research statements in terms of a negative aspects of these substances to receive continuous funding from NIDA so that he could study hallucinogens, and he received his first federal grant from NIDA in 1981. He held it all the way through his retirement. There were four or five labs all throughout the U.S. through the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s that had NIH support. One of the people who had research funding, like Mark Geyer, was Rick Strassman, who was so interested in these psychedelic molecules like DMT that he decided he wanted to do some studies with DMT in humans. There were four or five labs all throughout the U.S. through the 70s, 80s, and 90s that had NIH support. One of the people who had research funding, like Mark Geyer, was Rick Strassman. He was so interested in psychedelic molecules, like DMT, that he decided he wanted to do some studies with DMT in humans. He kept asking for what the rules were that prevented him from doing this work. I think the frustrating and funny part was that the federal government didn't actually have explicit rules that prevented research on DMT. But authorities continued to cite these elusive constraints. There were constraints in the application and approval process, sure, but there were actually no formal prohibitions for DMT in the law. It wasn't even on the list at the time. So now we know two things. One, there were some research that was undertaken in the U.S., but under a very careful watch and enforcement of which is comical in itself. The DEA found out when these studies were undertaken and decided to ensure that all future studies obeyed the guidelines they set forth. Second, after working through animal studies as new neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin were discovered, when investigators wanted to study these compounds in humans, suddenly it was a taboo. It is like what I call in a group meeting, zombie decision making, where no one knows who made the decision, but somehow there's a perception that something cannot be done. When nothing was written down in the law, especially one pertaining to prohibition of exploration of dimethyltryptamine in human clinical exploration. Mark Geyer mentioned the name Rick Strassman, who many in the area will know from his extensive work on DMT. DMT, or dimethyltryptamine, is seen as a spirit molecule because the experience with DMT was so quick due to its pharmacological properties. DMT opens the world to a very unique spiritual experience. While with LSD and psilocybin, or even peyote, the visions were one of grand-scale kaleidoscopic patterns, DMT triggered visions of spiritual beings from ancient mythologies and in some cases, even sentient beings that resemble aliens like a classic clock elf or a machine elf. DMT was so unique that the half-life was literally a matter of a few minutes, so it became referred to as a businessman lunch in urban parlance because a psychedelic trip with DMT would fit within the lunch break of a soulless cubicle slave. So how did Rick Strassman get into DMT testing in humans? Mark's former peers and two scientists at the National Institute of Mental Health, called as Jed Wyeth and Chris Gillen, had done an imaging study with DMT via the intramural research program at the federal agency. And Chris Gillen joined UC San Diego after finishing his training with Jed Wyeth. And another interesting link was that Chris Gillen was also Rick Strassman's mentor. He had mentored Rick Strassman for a short while, and both of them had published a paper on DMT, which is also referred by them as a spirit molecule. And this publication had come from within the National Institute of Mental Health. So Mark and his colleagues thought that maybe there was a way to do this, but eventually it took a lot of dialogue with the authorities for education. Finally, the government had to acquiesce because they couldn't find the rule within the books that prevented the use of DMT. But Rick Strassman 
was not initially planning to study DMT. It'll be very interesting for all of you that Rick Strassman in the first place was not even planning to study DMT. He was actually interested in another molecule at the time, MDMA. But we now know that by the time the mid-80s rolled in, MDMA was a forbidden substance by the DEA. We know that MDMA in the 1970s was used by underground psychologists in coupled therapy. But by the 1980s, the recreational use had skyrocketed and created such a bad hype for the molecule that DEA ultimately banned MDMA. So Rick Strassman moved to researching DMT because MDMA was in the Schedule 1 category. Now do you understand how the various personalities and journeys of people are intertwined? The journeys of Rick Strassman and Rick Doblin ran in parallel, while one argued from a patient advocacy and clinical psychology angle, another argued from the point of pharmacology. So in a series of three papers in the late 1990s, Rick Strassman demonstrated the safety and tolerability effects of DMT, and he documented the psychedelic effects of DMT. DMT, as Mark Geyer noted, is an endogenous serotonin-like molecule and is an active ingredient of the ayahuasca vine. We will have more about ayahuasca in a later episode, but we wanted to bring you the journey of psychedelics through the prism of the people and their experiences who brought about the change. So Mark and his colleagues decided that it was time to start something on the other prohibited molecule, psilocybin. One of Mark's close friends and peers in the area was another pharmacologist called David Nichols, who also happens to be at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Here is Mark Geyer again, recounting some pivotal personal and professional moments that are previously unchronicled in the history of the psychedelic renaissance that we see today. Mark Geyer recounted some pivotal personal and professional moments that are previously unchronicled in the history of psychedelic renaissance that we see today. David Nichols was a contemporary of Alexander Shulgin and published as much as nine papers with Shulgin between the years 1976 and 2010. However, unlike Shulgin, who was a psychedelic evangelist at all costs, David Nichols was a more considered chemist. Good friends, Mark and David, were of the opinion that they were the products of the 60s and had been determined throughout the dark years of the 1970s to keep the science of psychedelia alive, which to them, as scientists, was intellectually very important. The two had learned a lot about brain consciousness from the study of these compounds. But to their shock, they found that there was nobody following in the footsteps. Interested students would come and ask them how they could get into this field. But folks like David Nichols and Mark Geyer had to tell their trainees that they should not go down that route as it was not a viable career path based on their own experiences. And Mark in his interview with us said something very emotional. And Mark Geyer in his interview with us said something very emotional. In the early 1990s, David Nichols and Mark Geyer thought that if they were to retire... They were very much convinced that the field of psychedelic research would die out in the US. However, some work would go forward in Europe at a very slow pace, but the American effort and leadership would probably wither away. So David Nichols, in order to prevent such a situation from happening, felt that it might be good to develop an institute that would try to rehabilitate psychedelic science and bring it back into the mainstream. The two were very much aware of Rick Strassman's efforts with DMT, but their impression was that Rick Strassman was much more politically oriented person, and unlike Rick Strassman, who fought some political battles and became a vocal critic of the establishment, David Nichols and Mark Geyer decided that they wanted to be very mainstream science organization, and in their words, and I quote, quite literally, to overcome the bad reputation that the overly enthusiastic reports in the 1960s from scientists like Timothy Leary and others had given the science of psychedelic research a bad name and a lack of acceptability within the scientific community. So to create an organization that would do mainstream research on mental illness, they decided that their presentation of science and conduct of research on psychedelics had to be holier than the Pope. 
the only way to accomplish this was if the highest quality science was performed in order to rehabilitate the perception of psychedelic research in the United States. So, how did they go about creating that organization? For a while, they actually thought of establishing a physical building in New Mexico. To enable this, they even got architect renderings that would go to the funders because the regulations were much more simpler to have such an organization in New Mexico due to the presence of the Native American church. But once it became clear that they were going to use philanthropic money, the brain trust of the founders that involved Mark Geyer, David Nichols, George Greer, decided that they should be using all the money available for funding research and thus the concept of a virtual institute was born. So it was logical as a result that they decided to focus on what they needed to do. The key mission was a realization that their work had important implications for not just psychiatric research, but understanding of human consciousness experience and for mechanisms controlling perception that affected some of the most important functions that were considered abnormal in some of the psychiatric disorders. Therefore, the scientific founders decided that their original goal was specifically to identify therapeutic treatments and understand those treatments. Despite all of this, the preclinical research-oriented founders of Hefter were very skeptical that there would ever be a clinical treatment outcome. So the founders had their first formal meeting at Mount Baldy in 1993, where the founders decided that they needed a name that didn't have too much baggage. And to ensure that the scientist and science wins, they decided that the founding group would determine the direction of travel and not the funders. And they decided to focus on their strengths as scientists, which is being analytical and diligent. The first funder was Bob Wallace, who was an early employee at Microsoft. In fact, Bob Wallace was employee number six, and he provided Hefter with some continuous funding all the way until his death in 2002. Mark Geyer gave us some very interesting personal insights, too. In his mind, 1993 was a pivotal year. It was also the 50th anniversary of Hoffman's bicycle trip. And guess what? A 50-year anniversary celebration was being organized in Switzerland. Sando even sponsored that meeting, and according to Mark Geyer, their sponsorship was due to their history and Hoffman's personal connections with the top brass of the company. But Sando did not publicize their involvement and also did not want others to publicize them due to the reputational risk in the face of a drug prohibition. This event was invitation only, and only researchers who had publications with LSD were invited. According to Mark Geyer's recollection, there were around 100 people in attendance, and this is where some very fruitful collaborations bloomed for Mark. This is where the transatlantic current directorial team for the Research Institute came to be. And for Mark Geyer, this was the start of some seminal collaboration with Franz Wollenweider. According to Mark Geyer, it was a brainchild of Professor David Nichols. David Nichols and the leadership group established the Institute in New Mexico as it was the state with the least degree of legal resistance owing to the Native American church. But why did the research organization need to be called the Hefter Research Institute? But for a moment, can we stop and reflect on the name Hefter Research Institute? Why was the research institute that these researchers saw as the last bastion, passing on the knowledge in a formal way to the next generation, called Hefter Research Institute? Why was it not called something else? If you guessed half the answer, that peyote contains mescaline and New Mexico's Native American church connection, that's only part of the answer. The other more important part was in the real work beyond the discovery of mescaline that Arthur Hefter performed. After all, we promise that we will come back to this from episode two. Arthur Hefter's seminal contributions in pharmacology and toxicology is still in vogue today. Can we list some of his seminal contributions? If you're a scientist, this should really pique your interest. Hefter was the chemist and pharmacologist who developed chlorolose, the anesthesia used in many animal experiments until recently, but still used in many large animal studies by many physiologists to this very day. 
Why? Because chlorulose, as against every other anesthetic agent, does not impact the autonomic tone. He also figured out a way to measure lecithin concentration in the liver as a means to understand phosphorus poisoning. This is used clinically to this very day again. He measured the lactic acid concentration in muscles in response to paralytic toxins like strychnine and curare and gaseous molecules like carbon monoxide. So you can imagine how these tests have had an impact in forensic toxicology. He was also instrumental in isolating other alkaloids from fern root that was used as an anti-helminthic agent to combat intestinal worms. So if you've been to a pediatrician or have used a deworming therapy in children, especially in the tropical countries, due to the children losing weight rapidly, Hefter discovered one of the first medications for deworming. Furthermore, later in his career, through a collaboration with his dermatologist friend, Hefter became incredibly interested in the impact of chemicals and its metabolism in the human body and how it can be detected from skin samples. What did this lead to? Well, Hefter documented the absorption, distribution and excretion of iodine and the excretion of lithium mercury, and quinine. Hefter was the first to recognize the deposition of arsenic in hair, which led to the well-known forensic test for arsenic poisoning by hair analysis. So in David Nichols's mind, if they wanted a non-controversial time, so in David Nichols's mind, if they wanted a non-controversial name and one that would unlock the prolific potential of psychedelics, the name Hefter became the logical choice. So Hefter Research Institute gave the scientists the mechanism and the opportunity to do human research. But there was one sticking point. Where would they do the clinical work? After all, initiating clinical studies in the US was not easy at the time. They had to decide on two items. Where will the clinical research be done? And secondly, what compound will they focus on for their first clinical work? This is where the leadership of the Hefter Institute needs to be commended. They decided that their true North Star was to get some of the psychedelic compounds out of the Schedule 1 category of the DEA classification. So the compound they chose to do clinical work was psilocybin. Why? Not because it was the best compound, but because of its practicality. Let me tell you more. It is crucial for lay people to understand that when clinicians or investigators submit their applications to the ethical committee for a review, they need to justify the use of a compound for the clinical study. One of the critical things by this time was the need to demonstrate safety via published studies with the intended compound or have adequately described safety studies already performed. So coming back to psilocybin, it was chosen because of the abundance of studies using both mushrooms and the synthetic version in the literature at the dosages that they were planning to test. In addition, as we alluded to in episode 3, Sandoz in the late 1960s had marketed psilocybin as a drug called sensors. So there was a reasonable track record of safety that enabled single-dose studies and also due to the fact that psilocybin did not have the same scary perception as LSD did in the mind of people, psilocybin was chosen as the ideal candidate. The use of psilocybin enabled a study for a single day, where patients would come in at 9 in the morning and the clinicians would be able to perform the study and let the patients go home in the evening with adequate monitoring performed throughout the day. So it was decided that psilocybin would be the fastest and the easiest way to establish possible political advocacy to break the scheduling barrier. And if you remember, Schedule 1 requires a compound to not have a medical use. So the thinking was that by demonstrating that psilocybin did have a medical use, it would not be eligible for a Schedule 1 ranking. But we still haven't addressed one strand. How did the real scientific study start? Mark Geyer mentioned to us that despite all the initial excitement at the time, in the 1990s, both he and Franz Wallenweider were probably the most skeptical. We want to give you this story in his very own words, and I quote, What's amazing and surprising is not that they can help someone in the short term, 
but that their clinical effects seem to be so long-lasting. And it has gotten us into this neuromodulation, neuroplasticity field to try to understand that a lot of us love to understand what's happening. And there are ongoing debates as to whether one needs to have a psychedelic experience or just needs an agonist activity to produce the intended effect. The effects seen with the psychedelics are not pharmacological in the sense that they still present in the patient long after the drug has left the system. But the patient has been transformed. And most of us feel that this is a transformation caused by the profound experience that is produced over the course of several hours by the psychedelic action. So if you have read any of the recent publications that detail patient interviews from the psilocybin studies, this is how it came to be. But what patients did they study first and how did they move into clinical practice and convince the FDA that there was something useful for patients who volunteered without impacting safety? And these amazing scientists took a very pragmatic approach, but their approach was also a brilliant one. This was also around the time that the field of safety pharmacology was coming into focus and anti-cancer agents were coming into vogue. While anti-cancer agents of the time were supposed to be cellular toxins and therefore, as a result, affected the cancer cells more, but the function and the molecular actions meant that they were producing side effects. Such side effects would not be tolerable in an otherwise normal person, say one who is ingesting medication for hay fever. But a cancer patient might be willing to take on such a treatment, tilting the risk-benefit ratio to more favorable one. So the Hefter-funded studies looked at an impact of psilocybin in the end-stage cancer patients, who by nature of their prognosis had some form of mental depression. So it was reasoned that if there was an impact of improvement, this might be a logical first step in clinical exploration. The first steps to perform the clinical studies in the USA was by Charlie Grobe. Dr. Charlie Grobe was one of the original Hefter directors and he was also a pediatric psychiatrist with experiences at Harvard and UCLA. We mentioned Charlie Grobe because he had performed the first safety study with psilocybin and also received the FDA approval to trial the use of psilocybin in terminal cancer distress. It was a safety study to assess the safety and also the possible application to end-stage anxiety and depression seen in these cancer patients. There were a total of 11 patients in the study. This early safety and proof-of-signal assessment study protocol was accepted by the FDA. Mark also had a very interesting anecdote whereby he mentioned to us that Charlie Grobe had worked with Terence McKenna, another noted ethnobotanist on ayahuasca, so was very strong in clinical study conduct, but had little knowledge on how to analyze the data. So Mark Geyer's postdoc, Albert Haberstadt, helped Charlie Grobe, and the 11-patient trial was published in Archives of Psychiatry in 2011. After this, Francisco Marino tested psilocybin in six patients with OCD, which followed the initial cancer study. In fact, the Hefter Research Institute also tried to fund some DMT studies, but the FDA wanted some additional animal studies, which were performed for safety. But the ethical committee at the time did not allow the clinical trial with DMT, as there were concerns about sympathetic activation effects seen with DMT based on some early clinical work by Rick Strassman. So this is how the journey of psilocybin in regimented and legally transparent psychotherapy clinical sessions came to be. But we're not done yet. We have left a loose strand hanging from the beginning of the episode. Do you remember? It is a story of a lady, Amanda Fielding, who did not have a few letters behind her name, but she still managed to spark the psychedelic research. Just like Rick Doblin and the Hefter Research Institute founders, Amanda Fielding realized that the only way to accomplish any demonstration of efficacy with psychedelics was to explore this as a proper scientific endeavor. With an eye to lobbying on drug policy reform, she set out a process of setting up the Beckley Foundation in the UK in 1998. A couple of years later, she held a seminar series to educate the drug policy experts 
and to influence political leadership at the time in the House of Lords. It was one such meeting that also had the presence of a US scientist who was the former director at one of NIH's institutes called as NIDA or National Institute for Drug Abuse. The former NIDA director is said to have mentioned at this meeting that psychedelics would face an uphill battle due to political pressure in getting approval for any studies while still accepting that his own psychedelic experience with LSD was the most profound experience of his life and one that he is grateful for. Seeing the diabolical nature of global drug policy, she was one of the early vocal proponents of drug policy reform, arguing for more regulated and non-prohibitive use of substances classified under the Misuse of Drug Substances Act, a UK analogue of the DEA's policy. Despite all this, Amanda's interest into exploring psychedelics did not materialize until a young man by the name of Robin Carhart Harris made an acquaintance with her and expressed his interest in psychedelic research, consciousness and Freud. If people did not trust in destiny or being at the right place at the right time, the following story should make them think again. One of her academic friends, Professor David Nutt at the time, was advising the British government on the misuse of drugs. He had performed a formal study outlining the risk of psychoactive substances and their harms against existing regulated substances like alcohol, nicotine and comparing them to other drugs. The results revealed something remarkable. Psychedelic mushrooms from which psilocybin was derived was ranked really low, probably ranked last in terms of harm compared to alcohol or other addictive substances. Professor David Nutt, in an effort to be provocative, suggested that the harms might be lower than that of horse riding. This led to a furore in the establishment and dismissal of David Nutt from the advisory committee. While all of this was happening and the data for this study was being collected, Amanda Fielding's acquaintance, Robin Carhart Harris, enrolled himself in the PhD program at University of Bristol. And the two unlikely pioneers in David Nutt and Amanda Fielding joined forces to raise money to perform the first MRI brain imaging study using LSD and psilocybin. In the last episode, we discussed some of the changes in cortical blood flow, increased connections, and overall decrease in brain entropic state. But since then, Amanda Fielding and other philanthropists have funded multiple studies that explore the effects of these compounds using brain imaging techniques and exploration of the use of these substances to treat alcohol addiction and depression. Amanda Fielding currently is a founder of a small pharmaceutical company called Beckley SciTech that explores the therapeutic potential of other psychedelic substances. These stories really do paint a great picture in how when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And more importantly, the tough got going with a dose of rationality that did not exist in the area until the 1970s. So now we've told you how these notable people sparked the Renaissance through their efforts. But is there more to say from the patients themselves? Should we dig in? Well, you gotta wait for the next episode for that bit to unravel. You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists, and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thank Clara Bertinshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch. 
The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tirunyana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings including interviews are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website psychedelics.com. <laughs>